Do healthcare organizations underestimate the potential risk that malware poses to their environments? And what are the top malware myths that need to be dispelled? I'm Marianne Kolbesek-McGee, Executive Editor of Information Security Media Group. Today I'm speaking with Lisa Myers, a researcher at information security firm ESET. Lisa will be discussing some of the top myths involving malware and why those myths need to be dispelled. So now, Lisa, what are some of the most common myths about malware that you think needs to be dispelled ASAP because they are dangerous for organizations to believe? I think the myth that leads to the most problems for most organizations is the, the thought that I can trust email or whatever because it comes from a friend or family or an authority. Phishing is a fairly easy way for hackers or attackers to scare or intrigue somebody into giving away, say, login credentials or getting them to double-click on malware. Another myth that gets a lot of mobile users in particular is that attacks are only a problem on Windows. The browser is operating system agnostic. An email reader is also operating system agnostic. Plugins like Flash and Java work on every common operating system, so vulnerabilities that work on one system are likely to work on any of them. And it doesn't matter if you fall for phishing on mobile or on a desktop, your credentials are still lost. And I think the myth that gets healthcare in particular in trouble is that attackers wouldn't care about us, which, you know, it doesn't matter how small your clinic or how underpowered your machine is. It doesn't matter you're doing good work taking care of people. Attackers just see a potential payday. And a lot of times the way that they identify vulnerable machines is an automated scan. So it's a very impersonal thing. They don't really care what it is you're doing for people. A lot of times, a big score, like hitting a Target or Home Depot or something, can mean that their ultimate payday is less because it floods the market with you know, payment card data, and they get less for each payment card number. So having a steady stream of smaller batches can actually be more lucrative for them in the end. And medical and social security IDs aren't something that you can reissue like a payment card, so they're a lot more valuable to criminals. So now, Lisa, malware is growing increasingly more sophisticated and hard to detect. Why and what can healthcare organizations do to improve the detection and mitigation of malware? I think a lot of ways malware is still very simplistic. Technically speaking, any malware that you don't detect is something that's hard to detect, and that's kind of always been the case. If it gets in, that's when the problem is. There are a lot of ways that you can improve detection and mitigation. Detection relies on knowing what your baseline is, what normal is, so that you can know what's anomalous in your environment. That means knowing what systems in your environment, where is that weird old machine that's stuck in the back closet that's running, you know, Windows 3.1 or something. And it means knowing what network traffic looks like on a regular basis, like what is kind of usual behavior for people in your organization. And so that way, if something weird happens, then you can know something has gone wrong. Then it's also important to kind of think of it as, for mitigation, it's good to think of it as well, like pieces of a puzzle. If the attackers get something like a user's login credential, if you have two-factor authentication in place, they can have that login credential, but it'll still stop from getting in because they don't have the, the second factor. And if you have your network that's properly segregated, even if they get into one machine, they may not get into the rest of your network to where the, the juicy data is. You mentioned multi-factor authentication is one way to try to prevent 
the hackers from getting in. Any other prevention sorts of tips that you have? What's the best way to prevent malware from getting into your systems in the first place? There are a lot of different ways that you can try and educate your users. So thinking of phishing drills is like a fire drill. So, you know, every now and again, you have a regularly scheduled phishing test that comes through and, you know, you talk about what the proper response is. Like, for example, when you see a phishing email, send it to the IT department so that they can kind of catalog and keep a record of what sort of attacks are going on. Network segregation is another good way of doing that um, so that your systems are not any more connected than they necessarily need to be or there's controls at each point of segregation so that as people go into more sensitive areas, they have to have more credentials, that sort of thing. There's another thing called the principle of least privilege, which is basically saying that no one person or system or network gets more access than it really needs to do its job. And so on your home machine, um, if you have, say, kids who use your machine or guests who use your machine, you don't give them full admin rights to run whatever on their machine. So that can help potentially prevent malware. If they if they don't have the ability to run something that makes changes in the system directory, they'll be stopped from infecting the system. So now, Lisa, what new trends are you seeing with malware and any predictions for what we might see in 2016? This kind of goes to what I was saying about simplistic attacks. Phone trends isn't necessarily going to make you any safer. The a bunch of people in the, that are not in the field saying, okay, these are the things that are going to happen next year. If that's not what happens in your network, it's kind of irrelevant. Malware authors tend to stick with doing things that are the, the best return on investment, like they're going to go for the lowest hanging fruit. So they're going to find the people who are the most vulnerable. They can even use old malware at that point to get into networks. There's a saying in the malware research industry that you don't need to, to run faster than the bear. You just need to run faster than the next guy which is to say you don't need to have necessarily like Fort Knox security. You just need to have better security than the other guy so that they'll move on and look for someone else rather than trying to get into your system. So now, Lisa, a power blackout that recently affected about 1.4 million Ukrainians has been tied to the espionage trojan known as Black Energy. The attack appears to be the first time that malware has been used to facilitate a large-scale power disruption. Do you think that the healthcare sector might ever be targeted by a malware that could cause any sort of mass disruption affecting the operations of medical equipment or preventing access to patient data on a large scale, and why? It kind of depends on what you mean by large scale. That sort of disruption has already occurred in like, individual hospitals a number of times. Uh, whether it'll happen like on a multi-hospital scale, that kind of remains to be seen. Like, if a vulnerability were to be published that caused a denial of service to a popular electronic health record platform, it's possible that it could be targeted by attackers uh, such that an industry-wide problem could occur. And criminals are mostly after money, and stealth is not really achieved by knocking a bunch of hospitals over at once. But if someone were non-financially motivated, say someone who had a grudge against a particular hospital system, it, that's certainly possible. Is malware at the center of most hacker breaches that we see these days? And typically, what sort of malware is the most commonly used by hackers? Basically, any automated tool that an attacker might use to perform a breach could be considered malware, which malware just stands for software with malicious intent. Their malicious intent, in this case, 
would be to steal data. So they can do that by scanning for systems with vulnerabilities or by creating phishing emails, or they could convince a user to install spyware, or they could simply gain access to vulnerable systems and install spyware directly. As you might guess, the most common malware to put on a victim system or on the network, an organization's network, which is presumably what most people care about in this context, is spyware. They want to be able to catch things like keystrokes, mouse movement, screen and memory content, and things like that so that they can steal what they find and then potentially sell it to, to other interested parties. So with that said, what are the best defenses for preventing these sorts of malware breaches based on those trends and other trends that you've seen in the past with malware? There are a bunch of different things you can do. Uh, one that's really important, especially in the, the healthcare industry, is to make sure that your systems are up to date as much as possible. So get those machines off of XP or Windows 3.1, God forbid. Make sure that you have things like browser plugins up-to-date as much as possible, and the machines that you're not able to do that with, disconnect them from the Internet and or the, your intranet as much as possible. And the things we talked about like two-factor authentication, network segregation, principle of least privilege, encryption is another thing that's really important to healthcare in particular. If you, you can encrypt data on your hard drive, you can also encrypt it as you're transmitting it like through email or on the web or instant messaging. And that's something that's particularly important when you have things like your data being sent via mobile or cloud because most people's way of sending things on mobile is going to be through text messaging, which is you can't really encrypt that as such. They have instant messaging applications that do encrypt it, and I highly recommend people use that if they're going to go for you know quick and more secure transmission of data. And cloud's basically a nice way of saying someone else's computer. And if you're going to have your data in the cloud, it's really important to have it encrypted. So now, Lisa, you mentioned that if you're running an old operating system like XP, move off of it. But in the healthcare sector, often you see organizations that are running medical device equipment, for instance, that are running old operating systems like XP that are no longer vendor-supported. What can these organizations do to better protect those systems and equipment against malware? With those systems where you can't keep them with the most up-to-date software, it's really important to use as many of the different things we've talked about as possible. If you can disconnect them from the network, that's great. If you can disconnect them from your intranet as well, that's also a good way to make it potentially safer, at least contain any sort of damage that might happen. It's really important as much as possible to encrypt the data that are on those machines and have multi-factor authentication so that people are not accessing the machines if they're not authorized. Thanks, Lisa. I've been speaking to Lisa Myers. I'm Marianne Kolbesak-McGee of Information Security Media Group. Thanks for listening.